It's time to hit the brakes. Welcome to Swerve South. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast, Swerve South. Today, I'm here. This is Jamie Harker. I'm here with my co-conspirator, Teresa Starkey. Hey, everybody. And we thought today we would talk a little bit about the evolution of our own interests in gender and culture and swerving out of the expected. And one of the things we were discussing is our love for and interest in girl power 80s punk bands. And uh, for both of us, I think that was one of the things that got us interested in talking about gender. Um, so we just want to go through a few of the bands that influenced us in the ways they did and a little bit about that legacy. And we're hoping we can play a few clips and, and just have a conversation about rock and roll and gender and power and rebellion. So let's start with you, T. Since you, unlike me, were actually living in Little Five Points in the punk scene, I was just imagining it in my little suburban Mormon household. Talk to me a little bit about the way that music made you think or identify as a young woman and what it what it did for you. Um, yeah, there were so many great bands around in that like late 80s, early 90s moment. But if we're thinking about like women and rock and roll and and the, our idea of like desire or sort of fantasy or God, I wish I could be like her. She's so cool. And I almost used a word of profanity, so I'm glad I censored myself, right? Because I'm conscious, you know, of, of radio rules. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about in Little Five Points, I remember there was a, uh, a, a boutique, and that's even, like, not even the right word, like a clothing store. This woman, her name was Jennifer, worked at. And I would see her in there, and she was a guitarist. And she played in this punk band called Dirt. And every time I'd go in there, she was all really, really super cool. And I, I so I was like a, a silent fangirl because she was older. But it was one of these moments in terms of thinking about encountering young women in this space, right, that are um, making and producing music, right, and, uh, and, and doing things that, yeah, kind of against the grain and being part of this sort of subculture moment. And so for me... A particular moment that I came out of is this uh, moment where we had bands like Opal Fox Quartet um, with Benjamin. Um, and when it was Opal Fox Quartet, right, uh, he also had another offshoot, which was called Benjamin Smoke. And so Benjamin was like a fixture in our community and in um, the circles that I moved in. And he was an incredible songwriter. But he also um, performed in drag, and he subverted all of these expectations in terms of thinking about aesthetic and music. And he made—he kind of sounded like Tom Waits, but uh, and he was also a, a great songwriter, a musician, singer, and just really kind of generous. And I recommend um, if people haven't had the chance, watch the documentary um, Benjamin Smoke. Check out. Uh, Opal Fox Quartet and um, listen and then also when it was with Opal Fox Quartet if we're thinking about like gender bending I think one of the things to bring in too is that it's important to think about class right when we're thinking about growing up in the south and I, I'm particularly thinking about myself what it means to like come from a rural background move to um, the city and see right 
be working my way in high school, like as a senior, but also thinking about where I came from, but seeing someone in an Opal Fox Quartet um, Deacon lunchbox, who was this construction worker, who was also a poet, who would play a washboard and wear a brassiere. And um, going to these shows and seeing that, right, was just incredibly uh, mind-blowing and uh, empowering, right? Because right, he is totally subverting our expectation of what Southern uh, masculinity and manhood is. Um, so, yeah, so I, was th- I would think about right, these bands and these spaces uh, really kind of blew my mind. But I also, even before this moment, right, was listening to things that were already kind of challenging the expectation of gender. I mean, all right, I love Duran Duran, man. Nick Rhodes was my favorite, and I loved listening to, um, what was it, Gary Newman? Is that Cars? Is that right? Right? Even though I have to say, when he stood in his, like, uh, neon pyramid and was singing about cars, right, it totally freaked me out. And he um, had such that minimalistic kind of dance move, right? But he's blurring gender. He's wearing like his uh, vinyl kind of shiny suit in this neon pyramid. And he's wearing this makeup and he's looking super cool. Um, I'm enthralled by him, right? Do you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to him, but he's also scaring me too when I'm like this young kid, you know? And then I also think of, like, this other, like, going back and thinking about pop culture, Jamie. What about the band Kiss? Hello? Right? I mean, come on. Talk about a leather band, right? They're walking around wearing their, like, elevator shoes. They're wearing, like, their bondage outfit and their crazy makeup. But, um, yeah, and they're also playing with, like, sweaty masculinity and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, all of these things, right? Welcome to my psyche, right? So these are all the things that permeated, right, my mind and the way that pop culture sort of impacts and made me think about the world and kind of question, right? Question identity. Think about its fluidity, right? In these ways that were kind of unexpected. And I think I even mentioned before we started rolling, right? Like there's later in the 80s, you know, early 90s, there's Gene Loves Jezebel, right? And then all we have to do is think about the cure, right? So all these things are happening. People are, right, um, playing with our expectations, playing with things aesthetically, um, yeah. You're so, making me smile. I've thought oh, about sorry, loving yeah, fans. No, gonna, that's I'm, good. <laughs> I, I, you can't see me grinning like a fool in here as I'm listening to this. Because, you know, in the 70s, you think about that as being a very um, expansive decade. You, know, you got the glam rock. You got David Bowie and drag. Yeah. And we talk about the 80s. It's a much more conformist moment. You know, when you yeah. look at movies of Breed is Good and, you know, I'm in these, like, standard preppy, like, Izod, Levi's outfits in these suburban areas in this very normative Mormon space, you know, where they're, yeah, they're having yeah, segregated yeah. by gender. Like, yeah. they're giving us, like, young womanhood manuals in church. And I'm off listening to punk. <laughs> so I, and a part of me is thinking that this was that space that I could explore how to swerve out of these rigid roles I was being prepared for, right? And and it let me imagine these other possibilities. So I did not get to go to these clubs or meet the actual cool kids playing in bands. But through being able to listen to them and, and as MTV starting watching videos, I'm able to see some possibilities. So you're right. You're seeing all this like gender bending with male bands, especially the English mm-hmm. new wave bands. Mm-hmm. I loved ska, so I loved Haircut 100 and the English beat. And you had all these really beautiful girly boys 
singing in these bands, not to mention Culture Club. I mean, come on. Um, you know, I was laughing at how we all listened to YMCA by the Village People, and none of us knew at the time that it, what a coded queer band that was, right? The, the Village, right. right? Now I laugh or at in, myself. Or in the Navy. Come on. Come on. Right? There, it's, but, it's, it's, it's but not we about. No. <laughs> it's not about just signing up, or is it? You can hang out with all the boys in the YMCA, but it's good. But for me, I was seeing in punk all of these spaces, and I was growing up in Seattle in junior high, so. A group of friends and I would take the bus from my little Wedgwood suburban neighborhood to the university district. And that's where you saw all the punk kids hanging out with their big purple mohawks. And that's where there were two or three used record stores that you would go in. And I would find cool records and go in there. And they would always have the mysterious pipe paraphernalia behind the counter in the same kind of spaces. But that gave me this this taste of a different kind of way of swerving out of the expected um, and I love those bands. We were talking about um, the Go-Go's, and I remember there was a big Tower Records right across the street from the, the university bookstore. And when Beauty and the Beat came out, the entire window was filled with those fantastic um, drawn covers, you know, of mm-hmm. all, the, all the Go-Go's with mud on their faces and towels. Yeah, yeah. And the moment I saw it, I knew I had to have it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and found it. But that was very much that space of imagination. For me, the big revelatory moment was the Eurythmics. Mm. which will surprise no one. As a young baby dyke who had no language to talk about sexuality, I saw this amazing, powerful woman with her crew cut, you know, platinum blonde, singing badass things to guys to back off, and I was just mesmerized. The first time I saw the video, Would I Lie to You, I stopped everything. I didn't know what I was feeling, but I knew I had to watch every minute of that. And I remember now, I, I misremembered it when I watched it again, because I saw her, she was getting off a motorcycle, I saw her in her leather jacket, you know, really telling like the big boots, telling people to back off. When I rewatched the video, she was actually in a dress, like a mini dress. <laughs> she still had the hair, but I had just replaced that with the butch look, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved watching the way that she messed with expectations. She had this beautiful woman's voice in this like badass crew cut platinum hair um, and this attitude. But a lot of those were really creating those possibilities. So we were just going through a few of the ones we liked. The one I remember most distinctly, there was this college radio station that played I all the like new way. I might like you better if we slept together. That's the one. So <laughs> by Romeo Void, the song, I might like you better if we slept together. And I'm hoping we can play a clip of this. But my parents caught me listening to this on the radio in the basement one day and I got in big trouble because that was not appropriate. They were outraged. So I learned very quickly to turn the station and not let them catch me listening to the songs. So I would be in the radio, in the car with my mother. And the big song then was uh, Berlin's song Sex, mm-hmm. uh, which we all started to play part of, which was very shocking at the time, especially with the, you know, the, the guy would say, I'm a man, and she would do all these roles in response. I'm a woman, I'm a little girl, I'm a slut, I'm your mother. You know, and, and it was this very, like, crazy song. And it would always start with the whisper, before the music started. And I, the moment I heard sex, I would quickly change the station before my mother caught me listening to it. But if she was out of the car for a minute, I had it going full blast. And that was very much that transgressive feel that you were really stepping out of bounds. And in the 80s, when you were in these suburban spaces especially, there weren't that many places you could see that, mm-hmm. right? Um, I was in a very controlled environment. It was really only through that music that I got a sense of people who were not being good girls, who were not following the rules, who were creating these new identities in these really interesting ways that they could be gorgeous and amazing and tough and terrifying like Annie Lennox was. And maybe I could be that too and not have to just be 
a nice Mormon girl with like a little like bob and you know little barrettes in my hair like and I have to wear a skirt all the time like I'd wear something else I could be this other space and blur it um, but you see a lot of these bands I'm just thinking about a few of them Joan Jett Bad Reputation of course right Right. Which I love that now is like a mainstream thing about international right. women's soccer, but was so much not that. Uh, Chrissy Hyde, Banana Rama, who were the models for AbFab, absolutely fabulous because they were so famous for their shenanigans outside mm-hmm. of their music. Susie and the Banshees, Bow Wow Wow. Um, all of these had these amazing rhythms and beats and very transgressive lyrics that said, you can be any kind of badass woman you want to be if you're punk. Yeah, that's right. And I can't believe that we haven't brought her up yet, too. Also thinking about Blondie. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, so. Because Blondie had the glam, too. Like, so Blondie the, had all that glam did, she going. She had the glam and the grit. I give, we got to give her We got to give her that. And, yeah, you know, my yeah. favorite one was not Heart of Glass, so that was that was yeah. the big breakout hit, but Rapture. Remember yeah. Rapture? That was, like, yeah. early rapping yeah. that she would be playing with yeah. all this crazy. Being a Southern kid, though, that's complicated, right? Because Rapture also means, like, the end of the world. And, you know, am I going to be left behind? Anxieties I still have today, right, if I, you know, go through an empty parking lot. Um uh, has it happened? Yes. But anyway, so yes, yes, the rapture. But also thinking about the rapture of that video, too, right? That moment where you see her moving through these spaces in the city. And then also um, the way that we see uh, different music, right, that she's sort of playing and riffing on there, too, as well. But yeah, she's definitely, right? I like, yeah, the rapture was great. And I actually think that might have been my first Blondie album was that one. The first band I saw was... Um, what is it? Aria Speedwagon? I'm sorry. Uh, and then I that's feel like that's not punk. I think no, we it's say not. That for no, the no, 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 no. That's a caveat. I'm saying that I saw that. That's like soft rock, Jamie. Yes. Um, but no, then I saw Blondie, and I feel like I kind of recouped after that. But what's really funny it was like is like a I, detox from but, Aria well, Speedwagon. But what's really funny is where do I see Blondie? But another southern space of entertainment that was also sort of like a mecca, but in a different way than Little Five Points. But let's think about Six Flags, y'all, right? And like how many places, how many times, you know, as a kid going there and seeing like different bands. Yes, Duran Duran played there. Um, Mr. Mister, anybody remember them? I remember Do you them. Remember them? Yeah. Uh, but what you're getting at, which I like, is this, oh yeah, and the Cure. I love the Cure. Yeah. I I still have a, a strange love for the Cure, even though it's like a depressing. Yeah, it's like your depression music, but yeah. I love them. Yeah. Um, when I went through that breakup, I had the Cure playing in my car all the time. <laughs> it took me about six months to say, okay, now I'm a little depressed. We got to stop, right? Because that was part of that background. Yeah. But this is part of I think our interest in spaces because I know for you, you were able to break out to that alternative space at a younger age. Mm-hmm. For me, when I was in these, you know, strip malls and Six Flags and corporate spaces, there would be these interesting um, crossings and disjunctures where you would have these alternative voices entering more normative spaces and they would become unstable and they would allow for these possibilities. You know, I would be going to the mall, but they would sometimes have some of these records for sale in the tower records in the mall or they would have these subversive books in, remember Walden books, right? I do, yeah. Those, like corporate chain spaces that still had these eruptions of kind of indie punk anarchy. Um, and those are the kinds of, of cross-sections encounter that I think we both are still very interested in in our scholarship and in our teaching. Those eruptions of the non-normative in these very police normative spaces. Yeah, and I think if we're thinking about spaces, and I don't know why this just popped into my head, but I guess um, kind of stream of consciousness here, 
But I think about, um, as I said, right, we're talking about this particular moment we come out of. For me, it's like, you know, um, late 80s, being a, you know, ten, a teenager and then budding adult. Um, but I think about, like, like you already mentioned in reference Cabbage Town, which also was a place in Atlanta that was right on the cusp of gen- gentrification and what that meant for that area. But it had, like, this working-class background. It was a factory town, right? And so all around that area at that time, there were all these um, old factory spaces that were just defunct, right, just empty. And so one of the things that uh, would happen is talk about claiming spaces, right, is that being part of this moment or this movement where artists would go in, whether they were, like, art kids from Georgia State or um, the Atlanta School of Art, going into these old buildings, right? And then doing these like pop-up art shows where suddenly you're just you're just doing it, you know, do it yourself, string up these lights and you have um, a show, right? And so you have this uh, this this space artists are there, they're hanging up work, you have mus- musicians coming in and it's very much this urban space, but it's been sort of repurposed and reclaimed. And so I think that that's also one of the things that I find interesting is, yeah, how can we go into these spaces that are very much like around us in an everyday manner and sort of kind of change them and transform them? But what's happening in that moment, it's a collectivity, right? It's not, it's not one person in isolation, right? It's sort of this collective moment that's producing this, right, change. And I think that also ties into the work that we do, right, in terms of thinking about this idea of social movements, right, and then um, what it means to find advocates, allies, or perhaps at a particular moment, artists, right, who you may not be aesthetically working in the same, right, vein, but you have the same kind of appreciation of production and wanting to show, right, and exhibit, and you may not have that gallery, right, that's opening its doors to you, but this is how you do that, right? So yeah. I'm smiling at how much of the work we do now at the Eisman Center is very much that kind no, of no, work. Right. So Quite yeah. literally, when we had that concert in partnership with the museums at Roanoke, where we strung lights up right. and created this outdoor space where we had all this right. stuff going on, or we had different bands and Amy Ray coming and playing at that other concert we had there, yeah, or setting up artists in the powerhouse. And we did that great Cabbage Town um, tribute, mm-hmm. and you had musicians who had lived there coming and jamming on the side of them. Remember they got Adam Gusser, who's one of our colleagues That's in right. Southern That's Studies, right. run and go get your harmonica, and he ran out and did a sit-in session jam, right. which was about that right. creation. Or even, you know, with, with the bookstore, it was a former barbershop and then an art gallery that's right on Main Street that we repurposed to turn into a cool little alternative bookstore. And it's taking spaces and reclaiming and reimagining them. Well, it is. And I also think, too, what's interesting to consider is that thinking about different social movements, right, or artist movements. So there's also there's there's something that comes out of right like these social movements are changed, right? But it's also kind of like a do-it-yourself kind of punk rock thing because, right, there's maybe somebody's not going to do this for you, right? And so you've got to figure out how to do it for yourself. And sometimes you've got to learn how to say, boop, you. Um, see how I censored myself? See how I did that? Uh, but I think I'm that, shocked, but shocked I, but by I, this. But I think that that's, that comes out of that, right, is there, there, there's that sort of rebellion there when you feel like there's not these spaces for you and that you have to create them. Um, and then I also think that there's a way of like that frustration or this like the imbalances or the injustices that you see, right? 
um, and how you work to sort of rectify those things. I think there's a way also is like rechanneling right that frustration and doing these things. You turn it into positive action. No, that's so right. instead of railing or talking about how unfair it is, yeah. you just go make the world you want it to be. You're not well, waiting no, for them to right. save you. Right. Um, I, I think that's very much that DIY in punk. It's also in the work, the research that I've done. It was very much the early feminist movement had that same spirit. Yeah. We don't like the way you're depicting women in art, and so mm-hmm. we're gonna write our own books, create our own presses, get our own bookstores, distribute it ourselves. We're gonna create our whole world. We don't need you, right? Mm-hmm. We are going to remake the world the way we think it should be, and that energy I think is so remarkable. And I love those. I love to see those eruptions of it in culture. I love to replicate them. And I think that is so important in terms of the work we're doing. you got to swerve off the path and not just sit passively and complain about the way things are. It's creating these imaginaries, but also creating these spaces. And if you can't do it or no one's helping you do it, you figure out a way to do it. Um, And that's very much that kind of that transformative utopian, but also just optimistic sense of we're not going to wait for anyone else. We're going to make it change. And I think that's very much what animates our work at the mm-hmm. Sarah Isom Center. Mm-hmm. That's probably a good stuff. I think point. so. Yeah. Go out, y'all, swerve, get some trouble, create some alternative spaces. Yeah. Go punk. <laughs> uh, go listen to some of these really cool women, and I'm hoping there's going to be some feminist punk bands that will crop up in Oxford the next few months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. thanks, y'all. In my imagination, I'm in one. My band would be called the Mildred Pierce Experience. Just putting that out there. That needs to happen. Yeah, right. right. Good name. Claimed it. Mildred Pierce experience. Claimed it. it. So we need to put this out there. Anyone in a band who wants to help Dr. Starkey (laughs) realize her dream, she will scream the lyrics. That and um, I want to do roller derby. So any any in that capacity would be What about the Mildred Pierce experience on roller skates? Oh, Combine them. Yeah, yeah. It has to be roller skates, not roller blades, because those are... All right. Yeah. 2020, Isom Center roller derby. Yeah. It's on. All right. All right. On that note, thanks, everyone. Bye, y'all. Swerve South is a production of the Sarah Isom Center for Women and Gender Studies with support from the Southern Documentary Project, music and engineering by Tyler Keith.